I think we need to start by tackling like the misconception of yeah. where delight fits into your UX process. I feel like a lot of the times we strive to create delightful experiences, but the best way to delight your users is to deliver on the core value that you promise them, right? Why are they using your product in the first place? If you can't deliver on that in a functional way, in a very reliable way, then you're not delighting them and you lose every opportunity to delight them. Hi, and welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff, I'm a UX engineer at HubSpot. And I'm Matt, I'm a growth engineer at HubSpot. And I'm Austin, I'm a UX designer at HubSpot. So today we're gonna to be talking about a really trendy topic, uh, and that is delight. Basically, uh, how you build delight into your products, how you should think about delight, and actually what delight is in the first place, because it's sort of become this buzzword that we hear a lot of uh, project managers and designers talking about saying we really want to delight our users and we want to make these really delightful experiences but very rarely do we ever talk about how you actually do that what it actually means and how you measure that so that's what we want to discuss today though we do have a quick announcement before we get into that and that is that this is our first international episode so for the first time uh, the UX and growth podcast is being recorded on two different continents. Uh, Jeff and Matt are back in Boston, and we are using Skype to record while I'm here in Brazil. So Nice. We, I was hoping you would go in the direction of like, and we're sitting right on the edge between South America and North America. It's very hot <laughs> down here. Yeah. We snuck into the Panama Canal for this episode. <laughs> I don't even know if that's right. I'm terrible with geography. <laughs> All good. right. So back to our usual order of business. Um, how do we think about delight? Matt and Jeff, what is, what is delight to you all? How would you all define it? So I, I think we need to start by tackling like the misconception of uh, yeah. where delight like fits into your UX process, right? Uh, as you were saying, Austin, like uh, I, I feel like a lot of the times we strive to create delightful experiences, but first we need to just like tackle the fact that the best way to delight your users is to deliver on the core value that you promise them, right? Why are they using your product in the first place? If you can't deliver on that in a functional way, in a very reliable way, then you're not delighting them and you lose every opportunity to delight them. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so if you're going into this problem without that foundation and that core base, uh, then you have other stuff you need to focus on. Uh, and so I think we need to just ask the question, like, is there any products where, you know, you're only focusing on delightion or is there always room to improve your usability of your products, your functionality of your products uh, and that kind of thing? Yeah. And um, this is, uh, I guess, let's discount uh, entertainment like games, for sure. example, right? Mm -hmm. Where I guess the whole purpose is. To delight them, and, but those are a whole different set of rules. Like, let's talk about like you know something like a SaaS business. Like, your products uh, probably aren't uh, games. You know, there's some sort of utility, uh, some sort of uh, cloud-based tool. Perhaps that's something that's pretty popular. Um, and you, if you are thinking about delightion before you're thinking about um, 
improving the product on a fundamental level, you're probably a couple of steps ahead of yourself. Um, so Delightion has a, this kind of special magical place in the world of products um, where you can focus directly on it, but almost every time uh, by not focusing on it and focusing on things that are kind of, that seem like uh, tangential to it, you're actually creating that delight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like if you start with your mission of just like creating a delightful product without having that base, it's kind of like the analogy that we were just talking about earlier, is like getting a really cheap junker car and just like putting an iPad in the dashboard. You're creating like a fun experience when you're in there, but if the car breaks down on the highway, then what use is it to you in the first place? Yeah. Yeah, so this kind of goes back to how when we think about delight, you know, in, in a really broad sense, it's like this is when we deliver an experience to our users that is in some way better than what they would have expected, right? And we feel that it is necessary as product managers or designers to aspire to deliver delight because we know with things like NPS scores uh, and different ways of, of, of measuring how the adoption of a product spreads, we know that it's important to delight users because they will become uh, promoters and they will tell other people about our product. They'll be more likely to use the product themselves and retain. So we think a lot about like, you know, what what in a product would be a delightful interaction? And you probably have multiple different levels of this and multiple different examples that you can think of, but ultimately, before you can create any form of a delightful experience, and this is a lot of the time where we miss out on the definition of delight, you have to handle those basic requirements and actually those basic user needs. Aaron Walter, who we interviewed uh, formerly on the UX and Growth podcast, wrote a book called Designing for Emotion. And in it, he proposed something that he called a hierarchy of user needs with the very base of this hierarchy being functional. So like basic functionality. And this is what the user needs to have work in the product in order to solve a problem. So these are the basic functionalities that need to be present in order for them to do their job, if you will. And then the second layer of that hierarchy was reliability. So the product or whatever it is that you're designing needs to be up and running at all times. And then we go a, la- a layer higher and we get to usability. And this is a lot of the stuff that we like to talk about in UX. So is the product easy to understand? Is it easy to use? Can you remember and quickly recall how to use it? And then this layer of delight exists a little bit higher than that. And it's at this layer of pleasurable, whether or not the product presents a pleasurable experience. And this is something that doesn't always make its way into a product roadmap because we're so commonly thinking about those first three layers. We know that we have to have those present before we can think about a pleasurable experience. Uh, So when it it does make itself into a roadmap, I feel like it happens before the middle two in many cases. If they go functional and then they're like, okay, we need to uh, increase our retention. People are dropping off, they're not sticking what should we do? And then they don't think about the reliability, they don't think about the usability, they skip to the surface layer, the polished layer of all the competitors that they know who have already started to figure this stuff out and they're like, look, uh, they've added all this cool stuff, we should do some of that. Mm -hmm. But what they don't realize, and which is the point of uh, this hierarchy, uh, most of this you don't realize and you take for granted is like, these services are like this because they're not only functional, 
but uh, they are always up and they they figured out the patterns that are much uh, easier to use than their competitors before doing anything with with cool art or uh, uh, creative copy or something like I, that. I totally agree on that. I feel like whenever you look at a competitor and scope out what they're doing, uh, you do not see how reliable their product is. You do not right. see like how well written the code base you, is. You should never see how reliable their product is because uh -huh. the only time you, you notice a difference is when it's not up. Yep. And so, right. but what you do see is like how polished the UI is and right. you try and focus in on that stuff. And when you do that, you're making the very common mistake that this, uh, the way that they display their UI is why their product is successful. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's like drawing conclusions. So uh, this reminds me of a way a lot of people think about, um, and I'll only stick on this for a half second, but um, in terms of people who are not in business or who are not in politics think of those things because what they see is they have their basic underlying knowledge um, from what they learned in school or what they read online about you know this stuff. And it's a limited subset because they're not you know in it. And then they see the uh, the appearance, like the the final product of um, you know what's happening with politics or what a business is doing to the customer, right? But they never see anything in the middle because mm -hmm. that stuff is internal systems, right? Um, and all of these things in between, functional and pleasurable, are kind of internal and keep the gears working, right? Um, all, you know, most of this stuff is measured in numbers and is not just like a pure emotional thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then that's what makes it really hard to get and also hard to understand. Um, this is what UX as a science is all about, is kind of the numbers behind you know, these patterns and these things that are not obvious. Um, but that was, that was a little bit off to the side. Let's get back to deletion. Okay, so I think that our takeaway from understanding the definition of delight and this hierarchy of user needs is that delight can play a critical role in your product roadmap but you have to know when to use it and also why you're using it. Right. So delight is something that should never come before you've hit those critical requirements for functionality, reliability, and usability. It's only when you get to that phase where you can start to introduce pleasurable interactions into your product that you should really be thinking about delight. And arguably, this is something that you could plan for from the start or the conception of your product, but it's not something that you can really focus on and execute until you've made sure that you've hit those first three requirements. And then when you do get to the point where you're introducing delight, the way that you can measure that is, you know, how, how much is this causing people to promote our product, to retain within our product, to uh, spread our, our product to other people? Mm -hmm. But when we start to actually think about the execution of Delight and how we build that into our products, it can get kind of complicated because there's a lot of different ways to do it. And we found that there are different levels of Delight. Like you can Delight users in some very surface level ways, and then you can Delight users in some very deep ways. <clears throat> and we can break these up by levels of Delight that exist uh, viscerally behaviorally and then reflectively. So a uh, visceral delight would be something that is like really quick and it just happens from that initial impression that somebody gets of the product. So this is the type of stuff that we would, you know, associate with like illustrations or subtle animations. Behavioral is more focused on the entirety of the experience and how you use it, how it performs, how it helps you to do your job. And then reflective is something that happens 
more subtly and, and sometimes after you've even used the product and that is more focused on how the product makes you feel as a customer, as a user, as an individual. So when we think about Surface Delight, uh, there are specific tactics that we can use to actually build Surface Delight into a product and these are the tactics that you're probably most familiar with because these are the ones that are easiest to spot. They're more visceral. So like beautiful interfaces. Uh, we can make a design that's really, really well polished like what you were mentioning earlier, Matt. Or microcopy, uh, having, having copy that's peppered throughout the design and, and aids the user or adds a little bit of personality. Using simple animations. These are all things that, that we can build in as Surface Delight elements. Are there other things that you, that you all think of uh, as well when, when you're going through Surface Delight? Yeah. I, I like um, when, it, when it comes to animations, things that are like reactive animations. Um, not, like, not animations for the sake of animations, which is what you're saying about like simple ones. But you know, if you click something, uh, it kind of feels organic, like it moves once you do that. Google does a really, really good job with this. Um, with some of their like material design principles, which uh, when you click it like ripples across the screen, that's super cool. And um, even if I don't like the product at all, that button interaction is really great, right? So yeah. I can I can mention that. I'll just probably not retain um, the uh, when it comes to microcopy as well. Um, one thing to keep in mind is having a singular like think of it as a single person, right? Don't make your microcopy sound like you've got 10 different people saying 10 different things. Like, wow, we have, at HubSpot, we have one person that does the best they can to um, review all of the copy changes that we have because they're the trusted source of truth of like the voice of the product. Um, and that is what makes it good microcopy. And it's easy to spot when things are out of place. So, yeah. you know, being sure that everything kind of fits together. You know what I mean? Yep. Some additional forms of Surface Delight that we can think about, uh, interactions or like interactive content. So uh, ways that you can right, build. That's what I was just saying. The, yeah, those yeah. like those reactive elements into, but even you know beyond like your core design, we've even seen uh, certain publications start to do this within their, their content, like on their, on their blog, their written content. Oh, Personalization, so detecting who a user is and then delivering them an experience that's tailored to them. And there has even been a little bit of discussion around usage of sound, which I think is a really controversial thing on the web. Mm. Uh, and you have to be really careful about that. But there have been cases uh, that I found where, where sound can be used in a really creative way. Like for example, uh, I was recently on a travel website and it said, hey, you know, it came up with a little notification that said, as you're going through our different locations, if you wanna put your headphones on, you can listen to the sounds of right. each place that you visit. And yeah, so this is the big difference with sound. Yeah. It's like uh, giving the user a heads up that it's going to happen. Because sound is the one that, like, if you talk about an ad, for example, if you go onto a site and an ad starts playing and you're like, where is that coming from, right? Google has this great thing where they, um, they're, <laughs> they're penalizing websites by instead of trying to find the source of the sound, they just put the sound icon in the tab, which your reaction is close the tab, which makes you leave the site, right? Yeah. Um, and it's this idea of giving a user a heads up to not to not shock them or disturb them. Um, and then once you're doing what you're saying in this travel website, and I've been to a couple others, I saw this really really cool um, no, it was a, not a brewery, but um, they do like uh, whiskey or something, and they had this great interactive tour 
um, where it was all 3D and it was like an immersive experience. And like as you move the mouse around, it like moved with you and there was sounds for the transitions and stuff. Yeah. And that was like, you knew that there was going to be sound there and uh, it kind of set you up to be part of it. it, it like, it's almost like one, you start getting to the entertainment realm and that's where sound like makes a huge difference, in my opinion. But that's, anyway. in a lot of ways, that's what Surface Delight is, is right. it's those little extra details or elements of entertainment that, that where you, you see that and you're like, hey, somebody really paid a lot of attention and put a lot of thought into this design. But of course, as we mentioned earlier, that's something that you can only really realize once you meet those first three functional, reliable, and usable yeah. requirements. But really, Jeff, I think that you nailed the sound piece there. You've got like two requirements. The first is that you have to respect the user and notify them, hey, we're, we have this sound option. We're not going to play it automatically. We're not going to play it without notifying you. And actually, the only way it's going to happen is if you choose to put on headphones and turn it on. We're not going to like embarrass you at your desk. And then the second piece is that usually you would only really get to that level of using sound when you're trying to create an immersive experience. This is not something where you're like, oh, you know, I think back to like the days of GeoCities when it's like, oh my God, we can embed sound on the web now. Yeah, right. And this Listen is my, my favorite song. website. Yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, so I feel like it, that's it has very to be, contextual too, right? Like if yeah. you go to like a restaurant's website or like your favorite pizza joint, you're not gonna you're gonna be very surprised if they have like a sound yeah. uh, and like very immersive experience. But if you go to like a travel website for like this vacation all included destination that you want to visit, that might make a little bit more sense, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. Although I don't know about you guys, but I have a soft spot for like. Uh, really bad local pizza joint jingles <laughs> like crazy Dave's crazy Dave's pizza or whatever you know what I mean like uh, anyway uh, thinking about surface delight um, and the things that we're talking about we're talking it up right now but it like it is surface delight like this is uh, this is a, there's a reason that it's in that category because the things in deep delight are far far more important yeah um, yeah that's really I think where we get into the true value of delight these really deep delight elements they take into account functionality, reliability, and usability as well, and they operate within that context. Surface Delight, like a beautiful interface or microcopy or sound, a lot of the time that's something that could be universally applied. Uh, you could take the same type of delightful solution and put it within any product or any website and it's probably going to fly within that context. So for example, something that's become really popular on the web is these really, really subtle animations where like if you hover over a an icon, uh, now it animates instead of just being like a static element. It doesn't really provide any extra value to the user. Uh, and it, it, it's something that can be applied in any context, but what it does do is, is it has like this surface level, oh, that's a nice little piece of attention to detail. When you get to the deep delight area, you have to think a lot deeper about how you apply this delight and what the proper way to approach that is, but it also has a much greater benefit to the end user. So let's talk about that. What are what are the different types of deep delight that we may run into? And this is a little bit harder to define because as we were just saying, it's so contextual, but on a more general level, you can talk about it. So in deep delight, you'll find that these are the types of interactions that will really result from a, an understanding of your user's tasks and their goals, or to put it another way, uh, if you're using the jobs to be done framework, 
understanding the jobs that your users have and framing your design around those jobs and then finding the ways for users to complete those jobs more effectively, quicker, whatever it may be. This could be, uh, Deep Delight could be related to reducing cognitive load by using widely accepted design patterns. So having a good understanding of the patterns that are that are going to be most ideal for the product that you're building and then using those to sort of have a little bit of familiarity within your interface so that people don't go go through and have to relearn how to use right. your product which is interesting i remember you were talking a little bit about like how designs not art but it also relates into this with the surface delight stuff um, sometimes by doing surface delight you might lose out on the deep delight of accepted design patterns, right? You, you see, you build something that's beautiful, that looks great, but it's actually really hard to use. Um, and so if you have to choose between the two, you should do the deep delight one and kind of like take the hit on your own personal design mm-hmm. preference, right? Yeah, and this is, this is where well, we go back to the hierarchy of user needs, where those pleasurable elements and interactions should never cannibalize or be introduced at the expense of your more foundational elements like functionality, reliability, and usability. Mm-hmm. Let's give a couple quick examples of yep. Deep Delight. And especially, like I feel like in a lot of these cases that are examples I can think of, you're probably going to be touching on all these points of what makes something deeply delightful, right? And so I'm thinking of something within like the Jobs to be Done framework. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind for me is like if you are to use something like Microsoft Word or something where you're going to like be creating a new document, there's a lot of configuration options when you go to create a new document or a new PowerPoint or whatever it is. Um, and if you know that 95% of the time they want, uh, your users are going to use this specific preset of those options, right? You can drastically reduce cognitive load by uh, hiding all the advanced stuff for them, right. uh, giving them only what they care about actually changing, such as the name of the document, and then but still giving them the flexibility to change those things. And so you're kind of defining like, here's the job to be done for someone who is creating this new document. Here's how we're going to reduce cognitive load and deeply delight our customers by making this process way easier than giving them this long, yeah. lengthy, like 100 input form for creating this one document. You could even argue that the delight coming from something like Microsoft Word is not them doing the document. It's not even them finishing the document. It's them doing the thing with the document mm-hmm. that they set out to do in the first place. For example, I don't enjoy creating a resume. What I do enjoy is getting a job and I will trust Microsoft Word if I used it to do a resume because the next time, especially if I like successfully submitted it and everything, because the next time I have, I have all of like the know-how to do it there, I have a previous version in their software, which makes things even easier because, um, and I won't give Microsoft credit for the save function because I think that's been around for a long time, but like that helps. Um, and uh, wait, I was also, you're, are you talking about a wizard, Matt, or are you talking about um, like options for like different types of starter content? Yeah, I'm thinking of starter content, and starter this content. could apply to many things. Like maybe you're creating an email workflow. There's a lot of configuration options in there for creating an email workflow, right. and 90-something percent of the time, you're going to be using these same boilerplate options. Right. So let's abstract all the advanced stuff out and make it a much simpler experience. Right, and that uh, they built those, those uh, startup types of tools 
after seeing users use the product. Mm -hmm. You know, you could argue that if you're building your own editor, you know, we should add these in. Fine, because it's so close to what someone else did, right? Um, but if you're if you're kind of breaking new ground with software that's not that well understood, um, you know, something as as straightforward as a as a template or uh, you know some different types of starter content or things that it might seem like a good idea, but it might actually not be the answer, right? Um, as an example, at uh, like in the work that we do at here at HubSpot, um, we've run into some situations where we think people want to do one thing and we build a bunch of stuff around it and realize that it's actually not performing well at all, coming to realize that we didn't do enough research on the types of people that are coming into our product and the goals that they have, which forces us to build a t completely new type mm -hmm. of onboarding or you know, focus on different kinds of features. And like that, uh, knowing the jobs that people are trying to do before assuming the jobs that they're trying to do is, is huge. I guess that kind of goes without saying. It's just a, a, a UX research thing. No, it's very true. And that ties back into our first point that right. we made in the intro of this podcast, which is you need to nail the basics before you even begin to think about anything involving delight. Right, exactly. Austin, yeah. uh, I know you have some examples. What are you thinking of? Yeah, so I've got some examples of surface delight and deep delight. Um, oh, I'll start prepared. with a <laughs> I'll start with a deep delight example that I actually just came across right before we recorded here. I was watching a uh, UX review of a product that's basically they built this product uh, to build out quotes for electronics manufacturers, where like uh, multiple different uh, manufacturers will bid to build one single product and then the one with the best bid is the one that uh, of course you know gets gets to create the product and they have to make sure that it's really accurate so that they don't overbid and lose the deal but also so that they don't underbid and lose money right previously there was no software to do this and then these guys uh, out of Dallas created a software for it and they reduced the amount of time for creating a single electronics manufacturing quote from an average of nine hours to one hour. Wow. And if you look at their interface, it is atrocious. <laughs> uh, don't name names. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, it's atrocious, and they were aware of it. Um, it basically looks like a gigantic Excel document on steroids because the previous way of doing things, there was no software for this. So the their users or their prospective customers were always doing all of this work out of Excel docs. So to build this around their workflow, they basically created a streamlined version of that Excel workflow in a software interface. And that's what allowed them to take it from nine hours to one hour. Yeah, so I think about this. People knew how to use Excel even though it was ugly. Yeah, exactly. And I think about this and it's like, okay, they, this is like so perplexing because they managed to create such a deep form of delight in reducing those nine hours to one hour. But if you look at it on the surface, like this sort of visceral level of delight that we would think of, it's absolutely terrible um, because it's an ugly interface. So I think that <laughs> I think that this is this is where we can really see how these different forms of delight play different roles and how it can even be a little bit misleading 
sometimes when when we initially look at a product or an interface and we may say that thing's ugly there's no way that that delights users right yet this product is performing so well that they uh you know they can't fulfill all of the orders that they had to to get people onboarded and in, into it in time and now they're at a point where they're like okay we actually have to polish this thing and and whatnot so that was that was an interesting take for me is um understanding like you can you can totally achieve actually that entire hierarchy of user needs um, without hitting some of those surface delight elements right. while still hitting the deep delight elements. Yeah, it's like makes me think about um, if the users in this case were only using Excel before, um, not only is um, building the first couple of tiers pretty straightforward because uh, in order to reduce cognitive load, you want to make sure that you you know stick with the same interface that they have. In order to make it functional, you, you change the things that are different in Excel and make it more streamlined. In order to make it pleasurable, you can do anything <laughs> like you don't yeah. have to you, you don't have to put any effort into that yeah. like you, that's almost that's almost low-hanging fruit for you it's like uh clean up what excel doesn't do well you yep. know reduce yeah. un- the buttons or something but like uh because of that it actually on paper looks really simple right yeah and yet um as we were saying at the beginning of this podcast so many people overthink this right on paper that example is a very straightforward example that started with user research and then did the thing that they wanted and then uh, did it just a little bit better and but not that much better and yet it still caused such a massive change in people's lives um, and the tendency to overthink this kind of stuff is because many people are familiar with uh, these products that are so grandiose and have spent so much time doing this mm-hmm. and it's it's hard to see the fundamentals that they're bringing to the table yeah that's really interesting, and I, I feel like what it sounds like we're also saying here is that like deep delight is far more effective than surface delight, and in many cases, uh, when the two are paired together, they can be very effective. Right. Yeah. But you kind of need that deep delight first. Right? I think I think that also we're kind of coming across this realization that deep delight and surface delight serve fundamentally different purposes, and deep delight is that's the sticky stuff that keeps people in your products. That's what retains people to your products because it's so unique to your product. It's so specific to the jobs that people are trying to complete with your product. And Surface Delight is more of that stuff that gets people excited about your product, gets people to evangelize your product. The stuff that, that, it's like the candy on top that's just really beautiful or attractive and it's what people will talk about on Twitter because it's easy to understand because it's so surface level. Yeah, that's but that's th- what I wanted to bring up with, um, like you said, talk about like uh, the candy versus like the deep delight. Delight is a weird word to use for deep delight. Um, and I was talking to Matt about this before we started recording, which is this idea of retention versus delight. Facebook, now, I don't consider it a product that delights me but I consider it a product that I, without a doubt, am using every single day. And I would love to find an alternative, but I actually functionally and uh, and uh, I am unable to. Facebook yeah. serves such a strong, like the purpose of Facebook and the data that it has and the tools that it gives me are unmatched everywhere else. I wouldn't say I'm delighted by Facebook, but they do fall into the deep delight category. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit of food for thought. Um, it's 
delight kind of has an asterisk on it in my mind, whereas surface delight is like purely delight. Like there, that is the candy, you know. Mm-hmm. Deep delight is like people don't have to be excited about it for it to be in that category. I guess we just have to lump them together. Maybe there's a better word we can come up with in the future. I think that's a really good point because it's like what you're saying is like deep delight can lead to higher retention if you do it right, uh, but higher retention is not always because of deep delight, right? Right. If they have the rest of that hierarchy nailed down that we talked about a little bit earlier, then uh, your users are inherently more likely to retain and continue to use your product regardless of whether or not they're delighted by it. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It's like deep and surface delight uh, are still at the top of this pyramid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and furthermore, like something that I'm thinking of right now is like, if you have two products that are competing against one another and one of them focuses so heavily on surface light and it's a gorgeous user interface and it's so usable but it doesn't deeply delight you as much as the ugly counterpart well i feel like i would probably rather use that ugly counterpart right right it's providing more of that core value that it promises to me and if it does a better job of it I don't care what the other one looks like. Right, exactly. You know, so it's, it's kind of like a, it's a question of priorities, I think. Yeah. Another form of deep delight that's much easier to uh, understand is, um, as an example, like elements of predictive UX, where you can very clearly show, hey, we know that probably when you get here, you, pr- you want to do this, so we're going to just serve you with this element instead of making you ask for it. So good example of this, if you go to Zendesk's website and you scroll to the very bottom of any of their pages, the very last thing on the page is a full width search bar. So below the footer, below everything, the page just turns into a search bar. Basically what this is saying is, okay, you got all the way to the bottom of the page and nothing happened, so we probably didn't serve you with the information that you wanted. And if our footer isn't going to do that, then we're assuming that you're going to get to a point where you don't have what you need, and we don't completely know how to deliver it to you at this point. So instead, we're going to give you this option to search for it, because that's like the the best action that you can take at this point. Instead of making you scroll back up to the top and click for the search bar, we're just going to give you a search bar here at the bottom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's super smart. And uh, as you were talking about it, Matt just pulled it up, and it is really cool. Uh, yeah. And it's very seamless too. So it's like they didn't. It's not even an afterthought. Like it's built in. It makes it very quick and easy to. It's like it keeps you in the flow, right? Yep. If you, they one assumption that they did make is that you hit the bottom of the page and you were like subtly disappointed that you didn't have it. So that the next option is instead of leaving to look for it, right? Yeah. Um. So I I actually wonder what their uh, conversion is on something like that. You know, it would be cool if it was like half, which says a lot about like the motivations of people hitting a page like that. But it could also be a lot less. You never know. Yeah, I mean, they have. It's actually that could be an amazing tool for capturing data if you think about it. Because not only are you getting specific conversion rates for every single page on your site, because it's literally they have it on every page, so you can see what's the likelihood that somebody goes through this page and doesn't find what they need. But you're actually going to get contextual queries. Because right. they're going to search for what they want. So not only will you have a signal that says people aren't getting what they need at a high rate on this page, but then you'll have the words that they're looking for, <laughs> um, which I think is really excellent. And I can tell you that that, that element has been there for a couple of years now. So I think that... Um, it's probably working. 
Yeah, with the amount of experimentation that Zendesk does, I think that it's it's probably working for them because they've kept it around. In terms of like more surface delight, uh, the types of stuff that I think of is like we were talking about those subtle animations, subtle parallax, really, really aesthetic type of stuff. Um, something that Intercom does that I love is if you load their site and you pay attention to their images and illustrations, you'll notice that they actually start out blurred and they're using this sort of like progressive in image enhancement that mm -hmm. Facebook really pioneered. Um, I think it was a couple of years ago now, we've talked about it before uh, on the podcast, but basically they serve a very, very small version of the image and they blur it and then they progressively load higher resolution versions so that there is always content there on page yeah. load. Um, so those little elements of delight, this, this sort of goes back into like quality perception, brand perception, excitement versus how much are you helping me complete my task in a really mm -hmm. good, good way that we see with a deeper delight. I think that's a really core point that you just made there. Like you're making something about the experience better. You're not just making the experience look better, yeah. right? You're, you're helping the user out in some way. You're not yeah. making the experience. You're making it better. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and some other examples that I think kind of like tie the knot on this uh, that we're talking about a little bit earlier um, would be like a success state or an empty state. And if you don't know what an empty state is, basically if you have some kind of anything that's just like served in a list view from a database, you know, we've seen it many times, like your pages in WordPress, for example. If you have no pages, what do you, are you shown? Are you just shown an empty table or are you shown an empty state, which kind of tells you that the user that, hey, you have nothing here, you need to create something, and also maybe points out how you go about accomplishing that task so that you do have some kind of data in here. Uh, there's an opportunity in there with that empty state to delight the user, both on a surface level and a deep level, because you can make it very pretty, you can add some personality in there. But that kind of stuff is kind of pointless unless you're helping to enhance the experience by uh, helping the user figure out how to add the content in the first place, right, with the CTA that you're adding. So you kind of need that duality of like the purpose and how you're enhancing the experience and what you're adding to it, along with the surface delight aspects that we talked about. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, so now I think is a good place to wrap this up. Uh, we went through a lot of examples um, and there is a lot of uh, concrete stuff, but also a lot of philosophy that goes into where delight sits and when you should be approaching it. So um, if you have any questions or concerns or examples, um, or you want us to perhaps gut check your idea of delight, um, please send us an email. We have an email address. It's hello at uxandgrowth.com. Um, we're on SoundCloud and iTunes. And uh, if you're feeling particularly generous this month, um, or you know any day of the week or uh, next year, perhaps leave us a review on iTunes if you like this episode or you like the other ones. Jeff promises to sing more if you leave good reviews. Um, I am interested in, so we have a quota that we're trying to hit, and uh, as we surpass certain marks, I'll sing different songs as a thermometer. Uh, we'll, we'll share it sometime, <laughs> uh, or we'll surprise you with the songs. Uh, but um, one way to keep me from singing is to not leave a review uh, that, that's not a good hook. Crap, yeah. <laughs> uh, is there anything else, uh, Matt and Austin, that you want to add before we kick this off? Uh, so I will be putting some sources to the information that we mentioned uh, in the description. So if you want to read more about this stuff, um, there will be some good stuff there. 
Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you.